From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We are all by now, I think, familiar with the concept of extreme risk protection orders, and this is where a judge can disarm someone who has shown through his behavior or online postings or because of reports from relatives that he can't be trusted with a firearm. And the whole idea is to, is to prevent mass shootings. Well, now there has been a study of this done by the UC Davis School of Medicine in Sacramento. Dr. Garen Wintemute has been on with us before, uh, works there. And t- first of all, tell us what you, what you set out to do. What were, you, what were you trying to learn here, Dr. Wintemute? Sure. We're actually doing a broader study of the use of extreme risk protection orders here in California, a policy that we have, you have in Washington. Unexpectedly, we discovered that the restraining orders were being used pretty frequently in efforts to prevent mass shootings. So we pivoted and focused on those cases to begin with. Were you trying to prove that they prevent mass shootings, or were you trying to prove something else? We have 21 cases in which orders were used in an effort to prevent a mass shooting. None of those mass shootings occurred. We can't prove that the order is responsible for the outcome. What we have as a result of the study is some detailed descriptive information and some narratives of the individual cases to give readers an understanding of the kinds of situations that lead to the use of the orders. Okay, well, give me me an example of this, because I know that there are some people in the gun rights area who are concerned that this could, for example, be used to to settle a, a, a vendetta. You know, I don't like I don't like my my brother-in-law, and so hey, he's got some guns. I'm going to go to the police and have him disarmed. Yes. So I'll address that question too. Um, we have cases in which uh, a worker who had just been fired or was about to be fired threatened to kill his co-workers. We have a number of cases in which children or adults um, threatened to kill children, sometimes a specific group of children. Um, We have a number of cases in which people unsatisfied with their medical care threatened to kill the people who were providing that medical care. We have several cases that come from social or political or or religious motivations in in which people threaten to kill those who didn't believe the way they do. Um, And with regard to um, the abuse question that you brought up, there are due process protections built into the law. There are rules that have to be followed before an order can be issued. That's true here in California. It's true in Washington. And also here in California, we, we came back and amended the law. It's a crime in California to file a petition for an order based on false information or with the intent of harassing someone. Ah, okay, so there's a protection there. Now tell me this. Yes. What happened next? We usually report the story, okay, so-and-so was adjudicated to not be entitled to a firearm and was disarmed. But these are temporary. So did you investigate how these cases were finally resolved? In other words, did the the person in question change their mind, uh, come to their senses, or are they still nurturing some resentment such that they might try it again? Let's put that to Julia Schleimer, who also worked on this project. What can you tell me about that, Julia? So 
we know that in 14 out of the 21 cases, an order after hearing was issued to the respondent, and that order after hearing is a year-long order, so the respondent is uh, prohibited from um, purchasing or possessing their firearms for the duration of that order. And we know also that there were no bad outcomes that were reported in the media. And by that, I mean suicide, homicide, or mass shootings perpetrated by the respondents of the orders. So were you able to get any deeper? Did, did, we, did you find out whether the threat or whatever it was that caused this order to be uh, issued uh, changed the person's mind? Uh, that they were just having some kind of temporary crisis, and then once it passed, they were themselves again? I mean, do we know why why somebody suddenly turns violent but then is no longer a problem? That's a great question, and unfortunately we don't have that detailed information right now. We can glean a little bit of information from the court records that we use for the study. And in some cases, the respondents of the order were arrested on a criminal threat or they received counseling for the threat that occurred. But we can't have detailed information about the lives of these people other than what's in the court records, which is often describing the events leading up to the order, not necessarily after it, although that is part of our larger project that we're working on currently. Mm -hmm. Was there anyone you encountered who felt misunderstood? In other words, they came back and said, wait a second, don't disarm me. I was just spouting off or I was just, uh, I was just telling a joke. Yeah, so in California, the respondent does have the opportunity to come back to the court and say either I agree or I disagree and here's why. And in a few cases, we did see respondents do that. Uh, some actually agreed with the order some petitioned and uh, felt that it wasn't necessary. Um, and the judge takes that into account as they um, make their decision about the order after hearing. So people could defend themselves. Were there cases where the person successfully defended themselves and the judge then did not issue the order as requested? So I believe there were two cases in which an order after hearing was originally petitioned for, but wasn't in the end issued. And that happened for a variety of reasons. Uh, Some of those reasons included the respondent themselves, or just outside information that the judge took into account. And also in one case, I believe the petitioner ended up dismissing, uh, dropping their uh, petition. And in those two cases, did any of the subjects of those two cases ever go on to commit a crime of any kind? So none Uh, zero out of the 21 cases that we identified went on to be the perpetrator of a suicide, homicide, or mass shooting. And that also includes the cases where the people were not disarmed. Right. Um, And I should say that in California, there are three types of orders. There's an emergency order, which can be issued 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's an ex parte order, which can be petitioned for during regular business hours. Both of those last for three weeks. So a respondent of the order is prohibited from purchasing or possessing firearms for three weeks. And then after those three weeks, there's a hearing to see whether or not a one-year order should be issued to the respondent. So in all of the cases that we identified, there was either an emergency order or an ex parte order issued up front, and firearms were removed from the situation in those instances. So when I say that not all of the respondents 
went on to be prohibited for a year, they still did receive either this um, emergency or ex parte order, which would disarm them for that period of three weeks. Oh, I see. Okay, so everybody was disarmed. It's just that it was for different periods of time. Correct. I see. Back to Dr. Winterview now. So in the cases where people were disarmed, were these routine pistols and, uh, and long guns, or did anybody... Did you find that there were people who had really exotic plans, I mean, like giant arsenals? There were, if I recall correctly, there were 26 firearms recovered in one case. Uh, other than that, uh, there was a mix. There were pistols and revolvers and more conventional rifles and shotguns. And all obtained legally, or did you find cases where they'd been stolen? Uh, if I can take a step back, yeah. um, in most cases, the law enforcement authorities looked at Justice Department records to see what, if any, weapons were recorded as belonging to the respondents. Uh, but then on the scene, they're obviously going to recover as many firearms as they can. And there were cases in which they recovered firearms they didn't know about. That's not a surprise. That happens all the time. There were also cases in which they were not able to recover firearms that they believed the subject had. Um, and we don't have information on whether those firearms were recovered later or not. I would, let me um, digress, Dave. There's a point I want to make that um, I would have brought it up at the end if need be. There were three cases in which the people subject to the orders didn't own firearms, at least as far as anybody knew. Mm -hmm. The situation in these three cases was they had made a credible threat um, or had behaved in a way that would convey to anybody whose eyes and ears are open that something might be amiss. And they had just purchased a firearm. But California has a 10-day waiting period. It's mandatory. And in these three cases, intervention was taken during the waiting period, and the, the acquisition of the firearm never occurred. Uh, one person had a religious motivation and had bought an AK-47 type rifle. Um, another person was a disgruntled former employee. He had bought a shotgun. He didn't, he'd never acquired that shotgun, but when they searched his house, they found 400 rounds of ammunition for it. Wow. So, and who had turned them in? In the co-workers' case, uh, co-workers um, turned him in. Um, there were two cases motivated by religious or social concerns. In one case, the would-be assailant, I'll say, um, confided to a member of his religious community who contacted law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, in the other case, law enforcement was contacted by the FBI, um, they were aware of of this person because of an international anti-terrorism investigation they were conducting. But under federal law, there's nothing like an extreme risk protection order. So the FBI came to local police to uh, execute an order. As it happens, U.S. Senators Blumenthal and Graham are considering introducing a federal uh, ERPO bill and the House Judiciary Committee uh, is planning to convene in September to consider one. Uh, in both cases, the interest is in mass shootings. And here we have 21 cases in which the orders were used in an effort to prevent mass shootings, and none of those shootings occurred. Right. 
Yes, I've heard about that, and uh, that certainly represents uh, some progress. So th- the people who are turning uh, turning the suspects in, are they? is it usually relatives? No, it's usually not relatives. It's not. It's co-workers, fellow students. Um, there was one case in which a young man had done something we've become familiar with, postings on social media and so on, and one of his fellow students was so concerned by what he had seen that he flagged down a squad car passing in the street. Wow. Wow. So uh, when when, um, when these cases were finally examined, did the families know that this was going on, or, or, or was it being done uh, unbeknownst to them? Um, we don't have information about the negatives, I guess is what I should say. There were definitely cases in which the family uh, was aware. Uh, there was, if I recall correctly, one case in which a family member was a petitioner. I remember also a case in which a family member who could have been a petitioner instead gave a a tip to law enforcement, worked with law enforcement. And that makes sense to me. Having read all these cases, um, the people who are subject to these orders, you read the case and you realize, yep, these people intend to do harm. And if you're the petitioner, your name is on the petition. And if it's your family member, you might just assume that not be your name. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Were any of them turned in by the the gun dealers from whom they were trying to buy the firearms because it raised some suspicion or, uh, you know, a, a creepy feeling? No, uh, but there was one case, the one I mentioned that began with an FBI referral in which part of the information the FBI brought to the local police uh, was that the, the person of interest about a month earlier um, had taken a job at a gun range, didn't seem to have any interest in serving customers, was very interested in learning how all the firearms worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also learned from a dealer that uh, this person had purchased an AK-47 about a week before. They had about three days left to get the job done and get the order served. Well, that's good because it would help if dealers were, were keeping their their eyes peeled and their ears perked up. Yeah, I, I have to say I, I think they are. Um, not just from this study, from lots of work that I've personally done over the last 20 years or so, um, I am convinced that just like everybody else, the vast majority of gun dealers want no part of their products being used in crime. And if they see an opportunity to intervene, they'll take it. Actually, the same thing is true for suicide. Um, In Washington, I believe, here in California and in other places, uh, gun dealers are part of suicide prevention programs. So, based on your study of these extreme risk protection orders, do we, uh, do we have all the laws we need now to at least get a handle on the mass shooting problem? No. I think that extreme risk protection orders have a role to play in helping to prevent mass shootings. Um, I think we need to get some other policy interventions in place. I would put at the top of my list that there be a background check for every purchase of a firearm. There are also a lot of things we need to do to get those background check programs uh, working well. Uh, We have a study coming out that's going to outline actually nine specific ways in which background check programs fall short and makes recommendations for, for fixes in those nine areas. There's a lot more that we can do. And so I, I take it you would approve the idea of a, a federally-based extreme risk protection order? Yes. I, I see it this way. As, as a scientist, I, I have to 
stick to the evidence and and say as as we have said to you that we cannot prove that the orders made the difference here but if somebody asked me so faced with similar circumstances in the future should i start the ball rolling that gets an order issued and firearms recovered, and I would say, you betcha. I, for me, the, the bottom line here is something that we've heard a lot. It's just a little bit more true today than it was, and that is, if you see something, say something. Yeah. Is there any risk that as this is used more and more often, that people will get wise to it and do a better job of concealing what they intend by not posting it on social media and, and right. not bragging to friends, et cetera? Right. That's a really good point. So the the Secret Service runs something called the National Threat Assessment Center. And for 2017 and just a couple of weeks ago for 2018, they published a profile of these cases. And almost 80% of the time, the shooters declared their intent. Um, either people on the Internet or family, friends, colleagues of some sort knew that something was amiss. It's entirely possible, particularly with regard to politically motivated mass shootings, that the shooters will conceal their intent. But for the the most common form of of public mass shooting, one of the things that we've learned is the shooters are looking for notoriety. Mm-hmm. And if I don't brag a little bit in advance, right. I don't get that notoriety. But yes, um, use of these orders might change behavior, which is why we need to do lots of things. Dr. Garen Wintemute is at the UC Davis School of Medicine. They've studied the use of extreme risk protection orders to prevent mass shootings. Dr. Wintemute, thanks to you and your team for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.